This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 16th. Russian anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny has died in jail. We'll talk to Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, about the legacy Navalny leaves. Plus, a New York judge delivers a major blow to Donald Trump's business empire. We have the latest from the courthouse. And the NDP is putting the Liberal government on blast this week in its push for pharmacare. What's at stake for each party in this final stretch of pharmacare talks? The Friday Power Panel is here with their take. We begin today on the death of Alexei Navalny. Early this morning, the Russian prison where he was being detained released a statement saying Navalny felt unwell after a walk, lost consciousness, and died shortly after. The statement said attempts to save his life failed. Navalny was 47 years old. Alexei Navalny had long been one of the most vocal critics of Russian President Vladimir Putin and was once considered the only person with a chance of challenging Putin in an election. Navalny first made a name for himself through a blog that took aim at corruption in Russia's government. In December 2011, he led large protests in Moscow against Vladimir Putin, and for the rest of his life, Navalny was in and out of Russia's most notorious jails, a target of multiple poisoning attempts, and had his organizations labeled extremist. In the months leading up to his death, Navalny was moved to a maximum security prison in Russia's Arctic. Canada's ambassador to the United Nations reacted strongly to reports of Navalny's death, saying Putin murdered Navalny just as surely as if he'd strangled him with his bare hands. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, and he joins me now. Ambassador Ray, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. That was a a strong reaction uh, you had to this news. Um, How do you think Canada and, and other countries should respond to what's happened here? Well, I don't know how else one can respond to something like this. It's a, it's a, it's a genuine atrocity. Uh, Navalny was poisoned, uh, left the country, barely survived because uh, in, in the German hospital, uh, and then having recovered, decided that he would go back. Um, no, knowing what risk he was taking, and he, of course he was arrested as soon as he got off the plane. So uh, his conditions in, in prison have been impossible. His sentences kept getting lengthened. Uh, He was in solitary confinement. Uh, He was in one of these places where they keep the lights on all day and all night. Uh, He couldn't eat properly, had lots of health issues, and and he died as a result. And uh, all of that happened because that's what President Putin wanted to happen. And so I think any sensible person would say Putin is responsible for that, just as he's responsible for the death of Boris Nemtsov, just as he was responsible uh, for the death of a great many people who've been bumped off, thrown out of windows, mysteriously died in their hotel rooms, poisoned in London parks. I mean, it's unbelievable what this guy has has done and what his regime continues to do. Plus, he's killed probably about 250,000 of his own soldiers, let alone the tens of thousands who've been killed in, uh, in Ukraine, innocent civilians. So, this is this is not a good government in, in Russia at the moment. Uh, he's leading a vicious empire that's carrying out a neo-colonial attack on Ukraine and is disrupting life in many, many other countries in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. So he deserves strong words. That's what he should get. 
and even more than that, actually. Uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said today that Russia needs to answer, question, answer all the serious questions about Navalny's death. What, what facts do you think need to be established around this, and do you think the world will ever get those answers from Russia? No, we'll never get those answers any more than Stalin told us what he did to Raoul Wallenberg, or the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people, or the millions of people who died in the Gulag. We'll never get answers from, from Russia. Russia is the successor of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Empire killed millions of people. And Russia is killing millions of people. There's, there's no way you can sort of sit back and say, please give us your answers. He's given us his answer. His answer is he, he kills people who get, gets in, their, in his way. That's what he does. And that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a dictator who, who is responsible for the deaths of millions of people. This, this happens on a day when a lot of world leaders are gathered in Munich uh, for the security conference that happens there. Um, there's been some speculation that that timing is not coincidental. Uh, what, what message do you think Navalny's death sends uh, to the world and says about Russia's current place in the world? Well, I don't think Russia cares. I don't think Russia cares very much what we think. Um, and I don't think they care very much about uh, what other people say. I think what Russia cares about is what we do. And I think the worrisome moment we're in right now is, do we take this dictator seriously enough? And are we prepared to do enough to stop him? Um, it's not enough for us to say, gee, it's too bad, we're waiting for answers from Mr. Putin. We'll never get answers from Putin. What we have to do is stop him in his tracks. And that's really what this next few weeks are all about whether NATO and the United States and Canada and other countries can do more than we're currently doing to stop what Putin is doing. That's what we have to, that's what we have to do. And those are the questions that we have to answer. The, the answers to that question, though, uh, Mr. Ray, uh, don't seem very clear, uh, at least from the United States perspective at this point. You know, President Biden is struggling to get that aid package through Congress. It's being held up by, by House Republicans seemingly at the behest of, of former President Trump. I, I mean, do, do you think the West will respond in, in the way that uh, I would suspect you hope it will if America can't get this through? Well, I, I hope I've made myself very clear. I hope it's not just you hope that, that I do say I, I firmly believe, David, I firmly believe that a victory for Putin of any kind would be a disaster for mm -hmm. the West, for our values, and for our security. Uh, and I've been saying this publicly and privately ever since the invasion of uh, Ukraine. And I think we need to understand what we're dealing with. I think we need to understand this level of seriousness with which Russia takes the struggle. And if we don't match him with our own seriousness and our own capabilities, then we're in deep trouble. Um, and the American Congress has its responsibilities. So does the government of Canada. So does, so does all of Europe. So does uh, NATO itself. We all have to respond. And we have to respond more effectively in order to stop Putin from what he's doing. Uh, the Russian embassy uh, here in Ottawa, the, the, the embassy to Canada, reacted earlier today saying the death of a Russian citizen is strictly Russia's matter. Thus, we urge Canada to stop interfering in our internal affairs. Do you have any response to that? Well, best of luck to them for that. The, the, the death of Navalny is a world event. And uh, they, can, they can say whatever they want. We will continue to say this. We will continue to speak out.
And Canada needs not only to speak out in defense of freedom, but we also need to act in defense of freedom. So, no, Mr. Navalny's death is not an internal Russian matter. The collapse of Russian democracy is a tragedy for Russia. It's also a tragedy for the world. And the replacement of democracy by uh, a very aggressive Russian empire um, is potentially catastrophic for all of Russia's neighbors um, and indeed for the security of the world. So we have every reason to speak out, but more importantly, we have every reason to act. And that's what we have to keep on doing. It's unclear who will speak out inside Russia with, with uh, Mr. Navalny's death. Um, there, there doesn't appear to be uh, another opposition leader to, to fill that void. They're either dead, in jail, uh, afraid. Uh, what do you think the, the, the consequences of this moment are inside Russia? And what do you think Mr. Navalny's legacy will be um, to, in, to the, I, to the I world? Think there are more, I, I, David, I really think there are more Russian Democrats than many of us will ever know. Hmm. There are more heroic people who are, yes, many of them are in prison and in jail, uh, but many of them are working as quietly and effectively as they can. They have a conscience. They have beliefs. They have been fighting for liberty for a very, very long time in their country, for indeed for decades and centuries. So there's many more of those people than we know, and we have to do everything we can to help them. But don't give up, because don't forget, people said that there were no dissenters in the Soviet Union, and that there were no dissenters in Eastern Europe. And they were wrong. And Eastern Europe is now much freer than it has ever been as a result of the courage of people who believed in the fight for freedom and democracy. And that's what we have to remember. There are people in Russia who believe in freedom and democracy, and we have to do everything we can to support them. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, David. Thank you. Within hours of the world hearing reports of Navalny's death, his wife, Yulia, addresses that security conference in Munich, Germany, saying that Russian President Vladimir Putin and his associates should be punished. If it is the truth, I would like Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends, I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family and with my husband. They will be brought to justice and this day will come soon. I would like to call upon all the international community, all the people in the world, we should come together and we should fight against this evil. We should fight this horrific regime in Russia today. This regime and Vladimir Putin should be personally held responsible for all the atrocities they have committed in our country. A New York judge has delivered a major blow to Donald Trump's business empire. The judge ordered Trump to pay $354.9 million in penalties for knowingly overstating his net worth to fool lenders. Trump's also been banned from doing business in New York for three years. Will Denslow is a journalist covering this story, and he's outside the courthouse in New York. So, Will, a significant decision with a lot of money uh, at stake here. Tell us about this ruling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, New York's Attorney General Letitia James had asked for the uh, amount that Donald Trump be paid to be in the tune of around $370 million. The uh, New York Attorney General also called for Donald Trump to receive a lifetime ban from operating a business here in the state of New York. She didn't get that, but she got pretty close. 
Justice Arthur N. Gorin uh, slapping Donald Trump with a financial penalty of more than $350 million and a three-year ban from operating a business here in his hometown state of New York. This, of course, came at the start of the trial when Justice N. Gorin actually ruled that Donald Trump was liable for fraud even before this trial got underway. This is a case that revolves around allegations that Donald Trump uh, inflated the value of his assets for favourable terms from lenders. Donald Trump's adult male children also didn't escape punishment. Both Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. both slapped with $4 million fines and two-year bans from operating a business here in the state. We have heard directly from Donald Trump taking to his truth social media platform. He says that someone's political views and the location where a trial is heard matters more than the actual facts. He adds that it is a sad time for the country and of course this is just one of a number of legal headaches that Donald Trump has either faced in recent days or will face uh, in the weeks ahead. Okay, the, the weeks ahead, though, uh, we, we anticipate there'll be some sort of an appeal. He has this other litany of legal problems on his agenda. W what are we watching for next with Donald Trump on this? Absolutely. So Donald Trump has denied any wrongdoing in this case or any of the other various civil or criminal cases that he faces. He says that there will uh, certainly be an appeal in this particular uh, case. And when it comes to his next legal battles, if we cast our minds back just a few weeks ago, already hit with $83 million financial penalty after being found liable uh, for defamation in the case uh, brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll. And just this week, a judge in a separate case uh, dismissed Donald Trump's legal team's attempts to throw out a case that revolves around allegations that Donald Trump paid hush money to the porn star Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election. That case will go ahead as planned to trial on March 25th here in Lower Manhattan. OK, well, thank you very much. That's journalist Will Denslow in New York City. Turning to our top story today, the death of Russian activist Alexei Navalny. We heard this morning that he died in the maximum security prison in Russia's Arctic where he was being held. Many world leaders were attending a security conference in Munich and reaction was swift. The world has lost a freedom fighter in Alexei Navalny. Russia is responsible for this. We'll be talking to many other countries concerned. There's no doubt in my mind this man was brave fighter against corruption, for justice, for democracy. Russia has serious uh, questions uh, to answer. And in Canada, the prime minister and opposition leaders denounced Russian President Vladimir Putin. Alexei Navalny has been, uh, had been an extraordinary fighter for uh, human rights, uh, for democracy, and someone who was standing up for the Russian people, standing up with extraordinary courage uh, for uh, a better future for Russia and for Russians. This is a reminder to us of who Putin is. The fact that Navalny, a pro-democracy advocate, an opposition to leader, was poisoned and then imprisoned and now is dead reminds us of how important it is for us to stand with the people of Ukraine. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev commented on X, formerly Twitter, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in prison. Putin imprisoned Navalny for the act of opposing the regime. Conservatives condemn Putin for his death. Deal or no deal? Well, as the March 1st deadline for a deal on pharmacare approaches, the NDP says it's up to the liberals to decide whose side they're on. 
when we submit our final position on this, that will be it. And then the liberals will have to decide eventually whose side are they on. Are they on the big pharma side? Billionaires who are ripping off Canadians or are on the side of families, the side of workers, the side of women, the side of people that need medication covered? We'll see. So what's at stake for each party and how real are these stakes actually? It's time to bring in the Friday Power Panel on that. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. The CBC's Jason Markasoff is in Calgary, as is the Globe and Mail's Kelly Kreiderman. And here with me in Ottawa, editorial writer for Le Devoir, Marie Vastel. Hello, gang. Happy Hello. Friday. Good to see you all. Uh, Happy Friday. Marie, we've heard a lot of this from Jagmeet Singh over the last couple yes. of weeks. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it because the liberals don't seem at all worried. And I wonder if this is sort of like a personal injury lawyer making big claims in public and then settling <laughs> on the courthouse steps. What do you think is happening here? Possibly. I don't know any injury lawyers. You, <laughs> you sound like you do, but it's, it seems similar to what we've seen going on time after time after time. Every time there's a de- deadline coming or an announcement coming, it seems like Jagmeet Singh... Um, there's a bit of bluff and a bit of posturing. Um, I also don't hear the Liberals being that nervous about it. They do seem to hear from the NDP that the threat is a bit more serious than it has been previously. I think Jagmeet Singh is sensing perhaps a little bit of pressure from his caucus or from his membership um, because of the last convention, because of what um, Mr. Ed Broadbent had said before Christmas, um, perhaps because the Liberals are doing so poorly in the polls and the NDP kind of starts to want to put a little bit of distance between him and them. Um, But I'm also hearing that they've had a deal for a week. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) there is something on the table, presumably not bad enough that Don Davies, the health um, critic for the NDP, is still saying he's optimistic and that whatever needs to be settled still is not uh, unreachable. So I, I do think this is a little bit, bit of theatrics, and maybe Mr. Singh saw the deal on the table and thought, hey, maybe I can get more, maybe I can get contraception. Um, maybe that's a little bit of what's going on. So, yeah, Nigan, you know, there have been oddly specific leaks about what is going to be in this deal, you know, about diabetes, about contraception. And while Mr. Singh keeps saying they've got until March 1 or there's going to be consequences, Don Davies, the health critic on this, who is the guy talking to Mark Holland, he, he, he's told reporters in Ottawa this week, as Marie said, he's not worried. So, like, what do, what do we make of this conversation? Well, it's serious enough that uh, NDP staff are telling their staffers, uh, I mean, the, the staffers to take this seriously and that it may happen very quickly. I mean, that that's fairly serious more than regular. Uh, there was a very interesting kind of moment earlier in the week when uh, Justin Trudeau was in Manitoba uh, standing alongside Wab Canoe and sort of, I think Canadians saw a bit of a cozy relationship between what is the more progressive provinces when it comes to Justin Trudeau, that's BC, Manitoba, And the other part of that relationship is that those are also the two provinces that have passed uh, universal health care or pharmacare for birth control. Mm -hmm. And suddenly then uh, you have Jagmeet Singh talking about birth control. Uh, It's an interesting kind of way in which I think that Jagmeet Singh is seeing a bit of momentum lost when it comes to the areas in which when the NDP are strong and coming out publicly to really make an appeal around an issue like birth control suddenly is kind of looking like appealing to a base that maybe turning away from Singh himself. Mm. Uh, Jason, how do you read this one? Um, you know, the, I mean, maybe maybe the warm relationship with, uh, with, with uh, Wab Canoe is just because he's the new premier, you know, and they haven't had their first <laughs> big fight yet. That could be part of it. But how, how do you read what's well, he going on? He also showed up with a lot of money. So. He, he, sure, he sure did. He sure did. <laughs> that never hurts. And uh, I think, I mean, a lot of, I mean, it, you know, the 
you know, David Eby, going back to Rachel Notley, uh, past NDP premiers have always been very, you know, had very good relationships with the government and, you know, sometimes certainly in Alberta, and we'll get to that later, um, frostier relationships uh, with uh, the NDP, the federal NDP leader. Um, this is, this is, this is Jagmeet Singh. Um, you know, he's going out and saying something, as, as Marie said, quite much stronger than uh, Don Davies, the health critic. Um, I'm not sure which you should believe. Should you believe uh, on Wednesday, Anne McGrath saying uh, we, you know, we're getting to Bass Hacks and we're not seeing this uh, getting done? Uh, Don Davies saying uh, just a handful of more things? Or Jagmeet Singh coming out, going back to what, uh, to what, to what Anne McGrath, uh, his aide, said? Um, you know, there's, you know, this, we've seen this before, as you were both saying. Um, it, you know, I, I'm not holding my breath till March 1st. I'm not sure if any, who is mm -hmm. um, out there. We've, you know, I mean, and gosh, we're, for the veterans out there, we've been through the, uh, the real version of uh, political gamesmanship on, uh, on, on minority government, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. where there is no uh, supply and confidence deal. And this is uh, several steps removed from that. This is like, do we get from this to a place where we could get to the brink. And uh, Jagmeet Singh, I think, has some political uh, motivation to always suggest that he could go there, that eventually, uh, you know, we mean this. And there, what, are, what are the words he used? Consequences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, but, um, you know, one only says that uh, so many times. Uh, and uh, people, you know, without people starting to uh, question, well, okay. Okay. Well, well, Kelly, Kelly, I, I wonder, are we at that saturation point? I, I, I don't know, right? Because uh, he said it again today, and he said we're getting very close to tabling our final offer, um, you know, w w with, with the Liberals on this. There was a meeting today, I'm told, uh, between the uh, Supply and Confidence Agreement Committee, between the two parties that, that, that discusses how things are going, and there was no sign of it erupting and falling apart. So, I, I mean, you know, uh, where should the panic beater me be on a scale of 1 to 10? About 3, 5, 8? I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't think there is a panic meter. If I, I, I look back to what Ed Broadbent said last fall, and he talked about this agreement going too long, saying it you know, the agreement, fine, but we should have made it a year uh, shorter. And I, I think there's, in a way, there's only a win-win for the NDP on this. They, they, they could win and get this agreement to continue with more of what they want. And I think, you know, the contraception idea is low-hanging fruit, frankly, something that everybody will agree on is, is not difficult for, for those two parties. It's not difficult to get agreement on at all, especially mm. when you have other provinces that have done it, or you go to a situation that uh, Jagmeet Singh talked about this week, where the NDP decides whether to vote with the Liberals on a case-by-case, bill-by-bill basis. They also have the advantage, then, of distancing themselves from a, a deeply unpopular Liberal government at this point, well before a next election that we can presume happens in 2025. I also think, though, all of this political posturing you know, we need to ask the question about whether this is good for Canadian policymaking. You know, pharmacare is uh, obviously a very desirable thing to have. But if you look at polling numbers for Canadians, what do Canadians want? Maybe Canadians want our primary health care system bolstered or our mental health care system bolstered mm. before this. So I think that's that's another thing that has to factor into these discussions about a very expensive program. 
Yeah, and, and if you take the numbers that are budgeted for BC for contraception, it was $120 million over three years. If you sort of extrapolate that to the population of Canada, that's $290 million a year just for contraception. I'm not saying it won't right. happen, but you certainly get the sense from the federal government, to Kelly's point, that um, there is limited funds um, at the end of a very expensive government mandate and with hopefully some money left for a future election campaign. I think the NDP, though, is... I would think they're very aware of the risks um, of pulling out of this deal. I think they will, if they pull out, um, keep supporting liberals probably on confidence votes, as, as Kelly said. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they must be aware that there's a risk to leaving the deal, not getting what they wanted done or finalized, and precipitating an election that would bring in a conservative government that doesn't want any of the things that were in the deal. Dental care is not fully um, expanded to all, all um, adult Canadians and all Canadians yet. Um, the anti-scab legislation hasn't passed yet. There are things that are not completed yet that if the NDP were to help send the country an election faster, uh, sooner rather than later, they could eventually be punished at the polls for. Yeah, but Marie, just quickly, if this were to fall apart and it goes back to vote by vote, yeah. Mr. Blanchet can suddenly... He's actually voted bit, um, right? many times with the Liberals. Yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but yeah, he could definitely... He's quite excited, actually, at the prospect of this deal falling apart. He's back in play, right? He's back in play. He can finally get things out of the budget, get bills passed that he also wants or amended in a way that he also wants. That's what people often forget. The bloc has oftentimes in past minority governments actually helped support conservatives or liberals when they were in power. So this isn't in any means, you know, we're going in election next week type of thing. So, uh, Nigan, just a, a final thought on that. I mean, given that dynamic, I, I mean, going back to the vote by vote, there was a lot of high drama during the pandemic uh, b before uh, the supply and confidence agreement was signed that each vote you'd wonder how it was going to go. But typically, there'd be enough put into any piece of legislation to satisfy the concerns of either the bloc or the NDP uh, to get them on board. Uh, do, do you think that, that dynamic, I mean, if the NDP are worried about being dragged down by this, do you think that's something that actually helps them out? It's unclear to me. Uh, well, I mean, how many years have we been saying that the Liberals have been taking the sort of or tapping into the NDP base on issues time and time again? And in many ways, uh, some of the NDP platform for the past two federal elections have really just ended up being the centerpieces of the Liberal platform. Uh, is, I think I just want to add one thing to what was just said uh, by Marie just a second ago. I mean, sure. the health minister in Quebec came out and said that we would not support anything that involves infringing on uh, provincial jurisdiction involving health. I mean, are they really going to stand up against healthcare when it comes to IUDs or birth control pills? I mean, it seems like this is a no-brainer that it might be also a provincial issue around funding. I mean, if the federal government's willing to come to the table and be a single-payer system when it comes to certain elements of diabetes and birth control, I mean, how could they turn that away? Well, we already uh, have... We already have pharmacare in Quebec. That's oh, why the government uh, is saying, give us the money and we'll expand our own pharmacare. That's, what, that's exactly existing. my point. Is that that's why they would totally be on board. I know with Manitoba and B.C., they would jump at the chance of having the federal government pay for a portion of their already existing pharmacare plan. Uh, right. The... The, the real issue here is that if uh, Jagmeet Singh continues to want to have a foothold and want to appeal to the two bases in which he sees a supportive uh, ability for the next federal election, and who are those young progressives, and they are left-leaning, uh, older people, uh, 
j- tends to be people who are of the lower income bracket. Uh, those are the people who will be most benefited from diabetes medication and so on. I mean, the, he has to chip away at this ongoing uh, movement for the Liberals to continue to take the issues that are most appealing to NDP voters. And so this may be a sign of kind of an NDP platform. And I know it sounds like bluster and I know it sounds like it's not very serious, but Jagmeet Singh has got to do something. I mean, he's fighting for his political life here because the caucus is slowly or maybe even quickly turning against him, which is why it's been such a sort of a drop-dead announcement today. Okay, well, speaking of appealing to NDP NDP voters, the race replace Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley is on, and so far all three candidates are picking fights with their federal colleagues, which is interesting to see. Former Deputy Premier Sarah Hoffman told Canadian Press the idea of a consumer carbon tax is dead in the province, while her caucus colleagues Kathleen Ganley and Raki Pancholi say joining the provincial NDP should not mean automatic membership in the federal party, which is an interesting change. What could the political fallout be for Jagmeet Singh on this? So, Kelly, let, let, let's start with you. I mean, the NDP have this system where if you join the provincial party, you're in the federal party, vice versa. It's unique amongst the parties, as I understand it. But maybe not uh, in Alberta if, if uh, some of this comes to pass. What's at stake here? This would be a technical change. I don't think it would be a cultural change because the Alberta NDP, and you can argue other prairie NDP parties have stood apart mm. uh, from the federal party in a lot of ways. They, you know, you think about policies on energy or climate, it's much different. Uh, we have NDP leadership candidates now talking about uh, getting rid of the uh, consumer carbon tax, the debate about whether they can actually do that, of course, is a different debate. Um, and I, I think, you know, Dan, even even Rachel Notley, when she was campaigning in the election last year, she made uh, the distinction between her party and called it a pragmatist prairie NDP party and uh, the, 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 the federal party. And you don't see you don't see Jagmeet Singh campaigning in Calgary a lot. Um, no, I, I think this is this is part of the evolution of the Alberta NDP party, which has gone from being firmly entrenched in opposition in this province to being the clear alternative to the conservative party in whatever form it exists. Um, and I think that's what you're hearing um, these NDP candidates, leadership candidates, trying to appeal to a broader swath of Albertans who might be okay with voting uh, for the NDP provincially or not so keen on voting for the NDP at a federal level. Mm. Right. So, so, Jason, and I'm not trying to Alberta's playing to you and Kelly, I promise you that. Uh, but we, you know, when, when, when we were out there in Calgary for the election, um, we heard it a lot from, from New Democrats at the provincial level that federal party is a bit of a drag on them. You know, it's something they run into as problematic. They sweep Edmonton uh, provincially, but they scratch and claw at the federal level. And that this was something that was seen as a detriment to them at the provincial level, and hence maybe exploring the idea of a severing and, I don't know, maybe even amusing about a name change at some point. I mean, how serious is this? Is this just leadership politics, or is there something bigger happening? You know, I have heard from some of the campaigns that, that it, there are people who are reluctant to uh, take out a membership and uh, vote for them for leadership because do they want to automatically become part of the federal NDP? Um, there are a lot of tensions on the, I mean, not on every issue, of course. Um, in fact, Rachel Notley, going back to our last topic, uh, promised uh, cover, to cover contraception as a universal, with universal coverage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but on pipelines, of course, um, they've uh, seen, been at odds on a lot of carbon, uh, carbon emission issues. In fact, um, uh, MP Charlie Angus's uh, private member's bill on uh, 
on banning uh, ads for uh, fossil fuel companies uh, really uh, mm. got people's ire up uh, here, especially in NDP circles. So there's a there's a there's a, a desire among some people to limit the ability of the conservatives to say, oh, you're Jagmeet Singh's, Jagmeet Singh's your boss, or oh, yeah. do you guys have to stand by this? Um, but Rachel Notley has really put a lid on this stuff. Uh, she's really proud to be a, you know, a true orange and new Democrat. Um, you know, she's spoken at federal, um, federal campaigns, uh, worked with uh, MPs. Um, but the, this is this group of other ones, especially people from Calgary who have less ties to the uh, historic party, um, who are thinking maybe we don't uh, we don't need this. Now there are a whole lot not of not just uh, in Calgary, yeah. No, not, that's true. Not just in Calgary, in, in, elsewhere. Yeah. But there are a lot of but, but I think especially like in Calgary where there was no history with the, the federal NDP, uh, less so you know unlike in Edmonton. Um, but you know there are some there are these died in the wool new Democrats who uh, are happy to be part of the NDP who will be voting in this uh, leadership race um, who will be uh, keen to uh, argue against this. So it is a challenge. It is a bold thing. Um, I think some of the talk uh, before these policies are coming out was, do I get pigeonholed as the disaffiliation or the anti-federal candidate if I do this? Um, it's going to attract a lot of attention, maybe more so than some of the carbon policies or other um, specific policy ideas, because uh, it is spicy, it is different, it is, uh, you know, it is, creates tension within, uh, within NDP ranks. Um, so it's a pretty Bold, uh, bold, big uh, decision by uh, Pancholi and Galli to do this. Um, we'll see uh, if they can now sell memberships by, for, to people who want to get rid of the federal party's membership uh, ties. But those people, of course, will have to become members themselves to do that. You got what kind of a, a message would it send uh, to the country if you know a, a party that not that long ago was the government of Alberta were to decide to go down this path of, if not outright severing from the federal party? It certainly sounds like there's going to be a bigger distancing than we've seen uh, in, in recent years. Um, I actually don't think that's a surprise in any way. I think that, as I mentioned before and uh, aforementioned prairie politics, mm. that uh, there is a bit of an affiliation between what is NDP on the prairies and what tends to be closer to a federal liberal position than it is maybe a federal NDP position. Um, and, uh, you know, there is something kind of interesting. I mean, we are starting to talk a little bit about the leadership candidates. Uh, it's, it, I think it's interesting in Alberta and similar to Manitoba, but uh, in that there's a real divide of course between Calgary and what and what plays in Calgary and then Edmonton uh, you may be able to win the NDP leadership in Alberta by winning Edmonton but will you win the province and that's really the big question in is will you be able to get the sort of broad scale support which tends to pull a typical NDP position much more centrist looking more like a federal liberal position um, in Alberta, and that's where you then open up the conversation of the one person who is everybody is waiting for of whether he will announce or not, and that's Nahid Nenshi, mm -hmm. uh, who has Jason has written about, is kind of uh, very proud to be bar bipartisan, uh, non-political, former mayor of Calgary, but then to he offers a bit of oh Jason coined as sort of a purple politics. And that keeps orange right out of the equation. I mean, we're talking about a, a red liberal position and a blue conservative position. And if Nenshi decides to run, that will completely take the NDP in Alberta uh, completely in a, in a direction that uh, right. might be permanent. And it might involve a name change. It might involve kind of an absolute different vision for the NDP. And it absolutely will create a Calgary-Edmonton divide within the NDP that will be interesting to watch. Okay, well, I want to actually come back to that point. Uh, sure. but, but I want to get Marie in 
first. Uh, just w- what are your thoughts on this? Because I, I want to go back to Kelly and Jason because I have a couple of questions about Nancy and his impact. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this whole thing? On, uh, in general. I'll leave Nancy yeah. yeah. to the Calgary yeah, experts. Yeah, let's to the experts. I'm sure yeah. they have smarter <laughs> things to say than me. Uh, but... Uh, I mean, I agree with my colleagues that it, it, I'm not that surprised to see the Alberta NDP candidates sort of want to distance themselves from Jagmeet Singh. Rachel Notley did it. Uh, she wouldn't meet, I don't know if she wouldn't or didn't, but anyway, didn't meet with him in Edmonton in 2017 after he was elected leader. She didn't campaign with him uh, when he was went through Alberta in 2019. These like simmering tensions have been there for a long time. She even called his opinions on pipelines irrelevant. Ouch. Uh, so I'm not that surprised that these candidates now maybe want to take a little distance. Um, I mean, you have the NDP who is now in an alliance with Justin Trudeau, who I haven't been to Calgary in a while, but I'm pretty, or in Alberta in a while, but I'm pretty sure that's just the mention of that name is like heresy. So it probably also a factor going against uh, Jagmeet Singh. But if I could just like pivot a tiny bit, I'll be short. What I do find fascinating from an outside perspective and a Quebec perspective is this really stark, um, change of opinion on carbon pricing because Alberta was one of the first and only provinces to bring in a a carbon consumer price with Rachel Notley, obviously. Uh, And now to see that not only it's unpopular, but even amongst the the progressive, though I agree with Nigan, maybe liberal progressive uh, party of Alberta, it's even now a Mm. no-go that they would want to campaign on getting rid of it. To me, that's quite the the stark um, policy change. And I think it's very telling on Cost of living, conservative messaging around carbon pricing, adding to the cost of living despite a federal reimbursement uh, mechanism. It's just, yeah, that that whole switch in a matter of a few years is... It's pretty stark. We, we might be on the cusp of a, a transition to, uh, you know, industrial pricing and green investment as mm. a for it. Who knows, uh, depending on where the various elections go. But just on Nenshi, Kelly, do you think he's going to run? Mm-hmm. And, and when we were there for the election... Uh, <laughs> Edmonton was locked up for the NDP is they needed to win more of Calgary and push further into southern Calgary. Does Nenshi bring that to the table should he get in? What's your sense of whether he goes and what his impact might be electorally for for the NDP should he do it? I think he's taking the time to decide. I think he hasn't decided yet. Um, I think, you know, he has kind of defined his political career as being nonpartisan. So it would be mm-hmm. a big switch for him to enter the world of partisan politics and party politics, which is uh, a much different ball of wax than municipal politics in Calgary. I think the appeal would be there. And I think that he would have a lot of appeal in Edmonton as well. Um, mm-hmm. There, There are pockets of Calgary that are still angry at the at uh, 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 Nahed Nenshi for things he did while he was mayor. That could actually work against the NDP right. in Calgary to a certain degree because, again, people have that granular, detailed knowledge of what happened in municipal politics. Um, I think the other thing that would really happen, it would, it would change the dynamic for uh, other leadership candidates in such a major way. Who uh, The other candidates are party stalwarts. They are MLAs. He would take a lot of the backroom political firepower away as well. And I think that's got to be a big concern for those candidates. 
Okay, interesting. And Jason, just uh, your quick thoughts on that, because my sense of listening to Nenshi, uh, and by the way, he does a panel on his show on Wednesdays that is on pause until he makes up his mind on what he is going to do, um, is that it's less about being pro-NDP and more maybe about pushing back against what Daniel Smith is bringing to the table in the style of politics she's using in her government. What, what's your sense of where he is and what it means? And I get the sense that that's what really appeals to people, the idea that he could be, you know, we need this, the NDP or progressives think that we need this titan to, uh, this titan of, you know, of Alberta to, to take on Danielle Smith, because Rachel Notley couldn't do it, and we all thought she could, so we need somebody bigger. I mean, and Recky Pencholi, Sarah Hoffman, and uh, Kathleen Ganley, the three uh, MLAs in the race, have some profile, but not nearly that much, and don't seem, don't have it, this isn't name recognition that, uh, that Nenshi has. Um, he seems to be not in a rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to do that, make this decision. We're hearing it, you know, any decision might be still weeks because, um, you know, gosh, he has Canada Reads to do on CBC on March 8th. <laughs> so, um, but that's that, that there's like, if, he, if that's the case, there, he's eating up time uh, yeah. where he could be selling memberships and building a campaign because yeah. uh, the membership cutoff date uh, to sell memberships for this race is April 22nd. Um, so if, if he's if he's in it, but maybe not yet, like that's, you know, a lot is hanging the balance for this. And I think that's causing a lot of, uh, a lot of people both in, uh, in the pro-Nenshi camp and the uh, camp of other people kind of anxiety, like how right. will this race be scrambled? Will it not? And also, what does it mean if Nenshi has done all this dalliance and doesn't bother? Does that really take a lot of gas out of the race, a lot yeah. of energy out of it? Okay. All right. We're, we're out of time. Uh, we've got to leave it there. But uh, thanks. I appreciate the Alberta on the ground expertise uh, from you two. Thanks to the Power Panel. Egan Sinclair, Jason Markasoff, Kelly Kreiderman, and Marie Vastel. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.